From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The head of Colorado prisons wants to reform the system, and that includes getting perspective from the people who've been incarcerated. These stories sort of reinforce, of course, that it's worth it, right? It's worth it to be on the journey and in some ways get over our own denial that we've got this whole prison thing figured out. We don't. And it's okay, and I tell my staff and I tell the recruits, it's okay to question what we've been doing. It's okay to say, I don't understand that anymore. Does anybody else? Then racism sticks with kids, even when it's unintended. Like when a teacher anglicizes a student's name so it's easier for them to remember. A new children's book teaches young kids about microaggressions and how they can respond. Every day on CPR News, you hear stories that transport you out of your world and help you understand the lives of others all across the state and beyond. Hi, I'm Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. Colorado Public Radio brings you impactful journalism that's only possible because you value and support it. You rely on CPR News to keep you informed. Please support this vital service by donating at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Putting yourself in another person's shoes isn't always easy, and it couldn't have been easy for the man responsible for Colorado's prisons. Dean Williams is the head of the state's Department of Corrections. Recently, he read a monologue by a former inmate. That inmate, Daniel Gilry, spent more than a decade locked up in the system Williams now leads. The reading was part of a Boulder-based Modus Theater's Just Us project. It features stories by formerly incarcerated people, some read by the former inmates themselves, others read by officials who work in the justice system. Here's Williams reading Daniel Gilry's monologue on a recent, recent virtual performance as Gilry listens. Daniel, I find it an honor to read your story. And with that, I'll be reading Daniel Gilry's monologue entitled, Truth, Not Facts. The last time I went to jail, I'd been in there for about 18 months while I was fighting my case. I called my mom, hey mama, You guys want to come bond me out? She said, well, let me talk to your sisters, see if we can get up the money. And she talked to my sisters and they said, nope, no mom. He's up to the same thing. He's going to get out and go right back to the drugs. So we ain't in. But my mama said, well, I'm coming to get you. She went out and got alone and came and got me. I was strong in the word, and I meant it when I said I was done with crack. After my mom bailed me out, I went to pick up my car that had been impounded while I was in jail. Right before they arrested me, they searched my car, tore it up. I mean, tore it up. I had a nice Cadillac, and they pulled everything out of it. They could but they hadn't found no dope in the car. I was finally arrested for what they found in my house. I drove my car home and I was slowly putting the insides of it back together when I found a pipe under the front seat with a big old rock right next to it. And I'm thinking, did they set me up? I mean, they had searched my car up and down, even looked at my spare tire in the 
dope was right there under the seat, just, just clear as day. I picked up that rock and that pipe and I put it in my pocket. I said, nope, I ain't going to do it. But I didn't throw it away. I knew I should have thrown it, but I didn't throw it. And later on that day, I broke it up and hit that thing. And boy, whoo, Scotty beamed me up. Woo! As soon as I got beamed up, uh, here comes my mom. I mean, as soon as I took the hit, not 20 seconds later, she came home and saw me. I saw the tears in her big old brown eyes, and I said, Mom, I bet if you had known this, you'd left my ass in there. She looked at me with tears in her eyes, and she said, No, baby, I still would have come and got you. Sometimes when I tell this story, it makes me weep. Just recalling those words. No, baby, I still would have come and got you. Oh, my God. I mean, you could have kicked me or cussed me out. But that kind of blatant love makes you butt naked, raw, and vulnerable. There's no defense. It makes you defenseless. Anything else I could have handled. Come on, bring it on. You're a liar, a failure, an addict, worthless, a criminal. That's all you got? Yeah, I can stand up to that. But love and grace will lay you out, butt naked, no clothes on. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was what made me think differently and the pivotal point that led me to be drug-free today. That's the thing we got to convey to society. It's when a person is broken, messed up, and deserves love the least, that is when they need it most. And that grace is the thing that will give people the 360 right there. The key is helping people remember their importance, understand their magnificence, and then invest in helping them reach their potential instead of punishing them. But the criminal justice system takes all of our shortcomings and faults and it magnifies them. That's all they look at. They take the smallest part of us and make the biggest part of our existence when all this good stuff is just sitting right there, just waiting. It's dormant. It's waiting to grow, but it's not put in the right environment. And then instead, they send us down a dark tunnel into a place of violence at every intersection. Gladiator school where you learn how to place magazines uh, around your belly in case someone tries to stick you. You learn to always step out of your pants if you sit on the toilet in case you're attacked. And when you act out in that violence, they send you further down into the hole where there are no people, just an overflowing toilet, rats, and isolation. If you drop an oak tree into a concrete world, it's still alive in there and vibrant, but it's not growing. It's just dormant. But if you take it from there and drop it in a, in a decent place where there's enough sun, earth, nutrients, you don't even have to plant it. You just put it somewhere it can possibly grow, and that thing would take off on its own. The fact is, all of us in prison are human beings who committed crimes, but that is not our truth. 
We are not ontologically criminal. That is not our essence. And instead of helping us return to the full truth of who we are, the criminal justice system uh, takes away our names, gives us DOC numbers, robs us of our dignity, freedom, and happiness. And most of all, the potential to be our best selves that we could have been if someone had tried to nurture us instead of neuter us. And how can it change as long as the justice system continues to lie about what it's doing to us? They give us a piece of paper that says, the court is sentencing the defendant to incarceration for 10 years of rehabilitation and is fitted towards the sentence. Rehabilitation, my ass. There's no rehabilitation. When you send us to the Department of Corrections, you're making us more incorrect. There's not a sliver of corrections. Those of us telling our stories as part of the justice project are fairly new to this whole idea of restorative justice. But we know that telling the truth and taking responsibility for the harm we have caused is a big part of it. And we have reflected as a group in our writing process on that harm. But we are also asking the criminal justice system itself to sit in a circle with us and hear the ways we have been harmed because it itself has been criminal in the name of justice. Thank you. Dean Williams has been Colorado's head of corrections since 2019. He's worked to reform the system, lower the state's recidivism rate, reduce the prison population, and replace punishment with rehabilitation. After reading Daniel Gilry's monologue, Williams spoke to the former inmate about his story. Sometimes all you need is one person in your life to help you, whether or not it's a family member, a mom, a dad, a grandma, somebody in your life. Um, if just one person can believe in you when you can't believe in you anymore, um, sometimes that can just be enough, right? The other thing, and just quite frankly, I feel is that I don't like putting myself in your shoes. <laughs> and um, because it's hard, um, I see the things, Daniel, every day that I don't like. And um, there's quite a number of them. And it's, um, these are real people's lives, it's your life. And um, I know it's the real deal. This isn't an exercise, these are, you know, just 15,000 people in my custody, 16,000 people in the state, in the custody department of corrections. Closer to 20,000 if you count the halfway houses and other locations. So it's the real deal and it gets me in the gut. Daniel Gilry, who spent more than 10 years in prison, followed up with what it was like to hear Williams read his story. My goodness, his authenticity is absolutely transparent. I mean, it's, I, I, I see right through the guy, man. There's nothing opaque, just, and his spirit is, is vibrant, and he, he just affected me in a profound way, and I am deeply, deeply honored and moved by the way he portrayed my story. Thank you very much, Dean. Dean Williams also talked about the impact of Gilry's story on his role as head of corrections. 
I don't have to agree with everything that the way Daniel viewed it, but if I walked through Daniel's shoes every moment, maybe I would see it the same way, exactly the precisely same way that Daniel saw it, right? But here's the thing. Here's the most important thing. I don't have to agree with everything to try to convince everybody else that something is wrong. Something is wrong. I spent about three years in my old state running that system, trying to convince people there it doesn't have to be this way. It can be better than this. It can be more humane. Dignity can still you know, be in existence with someone's life. And other countries and other places around the world, they just got it better than us. They've just done it better. It doesn't mean people get away with highway robbery or, or um, there's not a consequence for your actions. There's a consequence for all of our actions. I drive home too fast tonight, something happens. I crashed into somebody. I'm not gonna get a total wash out of that, right? But here's the thing. It's not only the level of incarceration that we do in the country that's so high. It's what we've created as a result of it. So uh, I'm on a mission. I've been on a mission since I got here. And the rest of my team is on a mission to make prisons less traumatic and just a tiny little bit more normal. We have a long way to go. Oh, dear God. Sometimes it seems like too much. Like sometimes I'm like, where do, I, where do we begin? But these stories sort of reinforce, of course, that it's worth it. Right, It's worth it to be on the journey and in some ways get over our own denial that we've got this whole prison thing figured out. We don't. And it's okay. And I tell my staff and I tell the recruits, it's okay to question what we've been doing. It's okay to say, I don't understand that anymore. Does anybody else? And that we share. There's something wrong. It can be better than this. It can be different than this. I think a, a major part is the system is so bound on behavior modification, how we behave. But that's just the result of how we think. We have to renew the way a person thinks of themselves. And the thing that most likely, for me personally, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, what changed my thinking was that grace, that grace is a better teacher than punishment that when my mom granted me that grace that I know I did not deserve, it put my mindset in a place where I, I didn't want to violate that kindness and that thing that she had for me that I didn't even have for myself. So it's how we think that will determine our behavior. If you think right, you'll live right. Daniel Gilry spent more than a decade in prison in Colorado. Dean Williams heads the state's Department of Corrections. Williams read a monologue Gilry wrote about his crime, punishment, and rehabilitation. The reading and discussion were produced by Boulder's Modus Theater for its Just Us Storytelling program, which brings together formerly incarcerated people with officials in the justice system. The event was broadcast online as a part of last week's conference on world affairs at the University of Colorado Boulder. Just Us also featured music by Grammy award-winning saxophonist Ernie Watts.
The El Paso County Jail is the state's largest, and it's gotten more federal money than any other to try to keep guards and inmates safe during the pandemic. But those efforts weren't enough to prevent a massive outbreak there last fall. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry looked into what happened. Cecil Haynes spent a few months in El Paso County's jail at the end of 2020. He was housed with a mix of sick and healthy inmates and wasn't allowed to wear a mask. Within weeks, he was sick himself. November 10th, 2020, finally message back saying, I am now positive with COVID. This is Haynes reading a letter he wrote to his lawyer from inside. I feel really bad and the jail gave me this virus and they are doing nothing to help me. They didn't give us masks nor did they social distance us and now I fear for my life. Haynes recovered and is now out of jail, but he's still what he calls salty about his experience. They just, they just didn't care. We're just a number to them. Last November, the El Paso County Jail became the site of one of the largest COVID-19 outbreaks in the state, with more than 800 inmates and 73 staffers testing positive in a single day. At the same time, jail officials were in the midst of $15 million in improvements, funded by Congress, all meant to make the jail safer from the deadly disease. El Paso County commissioners applied for that money early on in the pandemic, after a 41-year-old sheriff's deputy died of COVID-19 while working intake at the jail. Former County Commissioner Mark Waller was part of that effort. Certainly I felt that it would make our, not only our staff members safer, I thought it would make people within, you know, that are incarcerated safer. And we have an obligation to them too, right? But some of the costliest upgrades paid for by federal COVID relief dollars weren't pandemic specific. They were long-standing needs the sheriff's department had identified to make the jail safer in general, including $8.5 million on new locks, doors, and cameras. The El Paso County Criminal Justice Center is the largest single jail in Colorado. It first opened in September. In a video made by the sheriff's office for the county commissioners, they touted the need for improvements inside the aging jail. The front entry and lobby areas are simply not secure. Lack of even basic security measures leave our front desk staff face-to-face with visitors and inmates that have just been released. The video didn't once mention COVID-19, but it did talk about how unsafe the old doors were, and they included a clip of a guard being attacked by an inmate. Camera systems are of such poor quality and have many hidden areas throughout the facility and grounds. When asked by CPR News, the sheriff's office did provide COVID-related justifications for all of the upgrades. For example, they say the new doors make it possible to more easily separate COVID-positive inmates from the general population. And a new locker room means deputies now have their own spaces to keep belongings separate. Had COVID not happened, I don't think that we would have done several things on here that, that we did. That's El Paso County Sheriff's Department spokeswoman Jackie Reed. She also points out that many things in the jail just weren't safe in the pandemic. She uses the intake desk as an example. If somebody came in and wanted to spread the virus, all they would have to do is talk. Even with a mask on, you'll see a lot of businesses now have a plexiglass barrier. Ours is a little more hardened to give the employees some sense of safety from the co- from COVID while they're at work, which they did not have before. There was nothing except a countertop. 
But those changes weren't enough to keep the virus out last fall, just as the third wave of the pandemic was peaking statewide. Commissioner Waller says the severity of the outbreak was a surprise. I, I can tell you we were pretty frustrated uh, when the outbreak happened in the jail and then to have it blow up so quickly. Um, and I think there were a lot of questions at the time. It's like, okay, are we doing everything we can be doing here? One thing the sheriff's office wasn't doing was pushing one of the most common precautions of the pandemic, COVID-101, if you will, mask wearing. It wasn't until November that inmates inside were allowed to wear masks, months after the governor issued his statewide mask mandate. Even El Paso County Sheriff Bill Elder touted the importance of masks in a Facebook video he posted over the summer. I just encourage people, wear a mask. Let's try and make this as easy as we can on the community and not try and, uh, not try and make, a, make it more difficult on individuals. In explaining why inmates were still not allowed to have masks in the housing units well into the fall, Sheriff's spokeswoman Reed said they were simply following guidance from the state health department. At the time, they were not recommended. They compared the housing units to wearing a mask in your own home. Even though jails with inmates and guards coming and going daily are obviously different. Again, the guidance was from public health that that was not really required. So that's the, the guidance we followed. Cecil Haynes says on the inside, he and the other inmates were watching the news and growing increasingly agitated. We all just was like, hey, we need masks. You know, we're not going to do anything you tell us to do unless you give us masks. Inmates finally received cloth masks partway through November. A month later, the ACLU of Colorado filed a class action lawsuit against Sheriff Elder, saying he wasn't doing enough to keep prisoners safe. Mark Silverstein is the ACLU's legal director. I, I think that it really was a case of extraordinarily negligent administration by ignoring some of the most basic mitigation measures. I think the jail was really allowing a lot of unnecessary suffering and unnecessary injuries to inmates' health to take place. But Silverstein has more positive things to say about the situation now. The ACLU has entered into an agreement with El Paso County, and sheriff's officials now have to provide masks, screen inmates for COVID symptoms daily, and space out people as much as possible inside. The situation has improved. We certainly hope that the jail continues to keep cases of COVID-19 at a minimum in the jail. And when they get them, they need to make sure that there's no spread. But the latest numbers show the virus does still have a foothold inside. More than 1,200 inmates have contracted COVID-19 inside the El Paso County Jail over the course of the pandemic. And even though the construction is complete, the facility continues to have a persistent infection rate. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Racism sticks with kids, even when it's unintended. Especially when it comes from teachers, it can make even very young students ask, is there something wrong with me? And that's the title of Maria Uribe's new children's book. She's a senior instructor in the University of Colorado Denver's School of Education and Human Development. She draws on her 35 years as a teacher and personal experiences for this story that teaches kids about discrimination and how they can respond. Hi, Maria. Hi, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Your book, it highlights a very specific kind of discrimination. Can you tell me about that? Yes, uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I um, decided to write that book, especially 
for teachers. And of course, um, any adult can read it and read it to their own kids. And But I decided to uh, write it because there's so much going on um, at this moment that we don't realize how much we affect the kids and how much we affect their minds um, for the future. So that's why I decided to write about that, um, that microaggression um, settings that sometimes happen in the classroom. And you give a really concrete example of these microaggressions, but you actually don't think the term microaggression is really adequate. So tell us a little bit more about that idea and why you don't think that term is enough. Well, that actually came um, lately. Um, we are doing a book study with, um, there's a professor at the university, her name is uh, Dr. Sofia Chaparro, and she's the one that is leading this book um, club. And uh, we're reading the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Abraham X. Kendi. And um, I learned from him that um, that he doesn't like to use the word uh, microaggression. He actually likes the uh, race abuse that people sometimes do. Um, and I think uh, for children, it's definitely an abuse because that this marks their lives for the rest of their lives, actually. So the herd is not small, even when racism is unintended. Now, in your story itself, it is a series of young girls, and they're asking their mothers, Mama, do you think that there is something wrong with me? And each mother affirms her daughter that she is intelligent and stunning and that there is nothing wrong with her. Then each girl tells her mama something that happened to her at school that made her doubt herself. A black girl's teacher tells her the beads in her hair make too much noise. A Native American girl's teacher assumes she isn't as smart as her classmates. A teacher tells another girl that her name is too hard to pronounce, so she'll call her Karen instead. How did you choose the examples of racism that you shared in your book? Uh, sadly, it is they have been um, real life experiences. So uh, like you said, I have been a teacher for more than for 35, 40 years, and, and these have, have happened and in the classroom. All of these situations have happened in the classroom and in my personal life also with my own daughter. And what do you know from your research and your experience teaching about how prevalent these kinds of unintentionally racist comments are in school where teachers don't mean to hurt children that way, but they do? Um, There's a a book that is called Word Choice, and and it talks about how important it is when we choose the words that we choose, especially in the classroom. And it talks about how incredible impact, the incredible impact that um, that teachers um, do when they say things that are right or wrong. Uh, I remember one time I was in the in a classroom and I just walked. I was supervising student uh, teachers and or teacher candidates, the way we call them. And one of the, this little girl was drawing, and I said, "Oh my goodness, you are so smart! Look at that." Years passed, and she was in fifth grade. This is first grade, and years passed, and she was in fifth grade, and I was at the same school. And um, she said, Mrs. Uribe, do you remember when you told me that I was so smart? And this was like five years later. So um, the book talks about that. The book talks about the impact that we could do for kids, whether it's positive or negative. The teachers have this enormous role in children's lives. And you and your daughter, you're also represented in this book. Will you share your story? 
<laughs> so <laughs> that story actually makes me a little emotional. Uh, so she was four years old and um, so she was in a preschool and she, it was her birthday party. And um, so she invited her friends and um, her friends didn't come for the birthday party. And I was so surprised. And so she said, mom, how come nobody came to my birthday party? I said, well, I don't know. And then later, like around five o'clock, a mother came and said, you know what? I decided to come to the birthday party because even though the other mothers didn't want to come because you spoke Spanish, I, I decided to do this for my child um, so he knows other people that are different than him. So I said, oh my gosh, this, this was the reason. Well, you know, I, you give them the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes parents cannot come or things like that. But in this case, it was not the, the case. It was just because they didn't want to come because we spoke Spanish. Mm, that is so hurtful. And I know you've told me that that stuck with your daughter, that even a year later, she was still talking with you about that. Yes, and I didn't think it did affect her. But a year later, when we were going uh, on Halloween, she said, uh, last year I couldn't go to Halloween because I, I didn't speak English. And I said, that is not true. You didn't go because you were sick. And she said, no, I didn't speak English, so that's why the kids didn't like me. Mm. And that is where the is that where the question comes from in this book, where the little girls, they ask their mothers, is there something wrong with me? Yes, that question comes from that and, and it comes from different um, situations. And lately, because of the, of the situations that are happening, um, I remember watching the, the whole event in the summer about tragic event in the summer that happened to George Floyd. And, and I, I remember watching also a documentary about uh, teenagers that were killed in Norton and um, I, and one of the girls at the when they were at the trial, she said, "I just don't understand what is wrong with me." And just by looking at me, what's wrong with me? And, and so I just I just had that in my head, and just looking at that at the news, I, I was just watching the news and looking at all the things that were happening. I just decided, no, I think I think it's time to say something. And I express that in my literature because I'm a literacy person. So I express that. And when things happened, like when I wrote um, the book, uh, We're Going to Be Alright, about children who have been deported, it's just when things happen, they just hit, they hit me really hard. And I, the, the way that I express my opinion is by writing children's book. And those are, that is such a big question for little kids to be asking. And the mothers in your story each tell their daughter that some people have difficulty understanding other people's differences and that one day they will know what makes us special and unique. This is such a gentle way for mothers to respond to people who have hurt their children. Why did you choose for the mothers to respond that way? Because that's what we need to do. Uh, we need to be kind um, we cannot continue being like this. So we need to be kind. And you wrote this book for children as young as four years old. How do you approach writing about such heavy topics for young kids? They feel it. Believe, believe it or not, they feel it. Um, I, was, uh, I was at the pool with my grandson. We, My grandchildren are bypassing because 
Uh, we we don't have my husband and, and kids don't have the Hispanic stereotype, so they're all light skin and blue eye. And um, so we were at the pool, and uh, one one little girl came. She was around five years old, and she asked me, "Does his mother know that you are with him?" And I said, "What do you mean? Yes, she knows. I am the grandmother." And she said, "Really?" So she, they know, they know, they just don't express it, but they know that there's differences because whether they're taught in the, in the, at home or in the classroom, but they know. So bringing the issues to them is very important. So they, they kind of start thinking about that since they're little. We cannot wait until the kids are older to talk about those issues. We have to wait, just like we do for everything, right? We, we teach them manners when they're little. We teach them oh, how to read, how to write when they're little. That's how we need to do it. We need to, we need to actually teach them how to treat people and how to establish all those differences as a gift and not as a punishment. Right. These, they're part of these conversations. It's important to have them really young. At CU Denver, you're helping to train future teachers. How are you training them to confront implicit biases in situations like you describe in your book? We have, we have classes. We, I'm, I'm very proud of our program because our classes, they're all so cultural responsive and we talk about it. And actually, that is why we're reading the book how to be an anti-racist because we we still need to learn. We still need to learn how to talk to students. We still need to learn how to be um, an anti-racist, how to make sure that our comments and our actions don't affect the children. Um, the, the students um, do the internship in, in very different environments with different def, very different uh, populations. And, and we still, all of us are still learning about it. So all our classes, our literacy classes, our pedagogy classes, our math classes, all our classes are all around that cultural responsive piece and that uh, that is so important and not only about race, but also about uh, the different genres and all the, all the diverse um, diversity that we have in our world. Well, Maria, I want to thank you so much for telling us about your book and also sharing your stories. Oh, no, you're welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. Maria Uribe is a senior instructor in the University of Colorado Denver's School of Education and Human Development. Her latest children's book is called Is There Something Wrong With Me? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Recently, CPR asked, what would you like to know about firearms and gun laws in Colorado? And you had many questions about safety, gun rights, and possible new laws. Come to CPR.org for answers to 10 questions you asked about firearms and gun laws in Colorado and an opportunity to pose your own questions. Find it at CPR.org slash gun questions. We've been tracking Colorado's big political experiment. A public commission, not elected officials, are redrawing the, congress- the congressional and statehouse boundaries. It happens every 10 years, but this time it's off to a rocky start. Let's check in with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Here are public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny with Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim. 
The big issue is that the census data, the final census data, is expected to be released sometime um, around September 30th. But the problem is the possible new congressional district maps are supposed to be presented a month earlier and selected by September 15th. Oh, wow. So, Lynn, you're essentially saying the deadline is happening before the date is even in. Exactly. So this was a big issue for their first meeting. Do you work with preliminary data or not? I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say when voters approved these commissions, people never would have predicted that we'd be in this situation where they're trying to create all these maps and they don't even have the census data. Exactly. I don't think anyone really thought about a pandemic impacting the or delaying, rather, the the census data. So, you know, how do you do your job when you don't get the final data until after the deadline for the redrawn congressional district maps? You know, there's one bright spot. They are still expecting to get the preliminary highest level number, literally just the population of the state, at the end of April. And they could use that to get started on drawing some of these maps. But Mm. this is really a pickle for them. Yeah. And I mean, states across the country are also dealing with this delay, obviously. So we're not the only ones. But In most states, lawmakers set these boundaries. So it's state legislatures and Colorado used to do it that way. But I think what sets Colorado somewhat apart is that the timelines for creating these maps are part of the Colorado Constitution now. Yeah, that is part of a change that was pretty exciting at the time that uh, voters in 2018, 71 percent of them approved amendments Y and Z, which created this uh, independent redistricting commission. which is something only a few other states have done. Once again, Colorado is out ahead of the pack. And the reason this idea is gaining popularity is because it's supposed to get us away from gerrymandering. It's supposed to reduce the temptation for politicians to draw maps that benefit them. And instead, it puts it in the hands of this new commission. Like, as you noted, you know, about 70 percent of people voted for this. That's I mean, to get 70 percent of people to agree on something is not easy. No, it's not. And commissioners won't just be tweaking existing boundaries because Colorado has seen some population growth. So it's it's likely we are going to get a new congressional seat. So mm-hmm. that means the commission may be reimagining the entire map and adding a competitive seat. Um, yeah. And, you know, while I am looking forward to following an eighth Congress member in the House, I will say this. You have to look at this, I think, also on the national level. Each side is going to want to get as much of an advantage as they can, especially in a house that is as narrowly divided as it is. How do you get a competitive seat when both parties are seeking to get this competitive advantage over who controls the house in 2022? So while Colorado has tried to develop this nonpartisan way of drawing lines, both the Republican and the Democratic parties are going to be looking at this because this eighth seat is going to help shape the balance of control in the House. So Colorado is going to matter and this new eighth seat is going to matter in that political equation. So Lynn and Andy, you both have been covering these first organizational meetings that are happening with this Congressional Redistricting Commission. Mm-hmm. It's clear it's going to be a difficult, complicated process, and and that's true anywhere you're going to be doing this. So many different factors to consider. But tell Mm -hmm. me a little bit about how the commissioners are selected. And, you know, some people may be wondering, like, why does someone want to do this job? (laughs) Great question. (laughs) Right. Well, so they had to apply, right? And from the applicants they got, the pool got narrowed down until you had 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans, and 50 unaffiliated voters. And then, you know, two were selected from each group using this high-tech method, you know, a bingo ball cage selection (laughs) method is what I like to call it. (laughs) 
Yeah, actually, one of the commissioners discussed the thrill of seeing his name picked out of the bingo ball cage. Gosh, I mean, most people want to, like, win money or something, right? <laughs> Not just be selected to a commission. Hey, they do get a per diem for, a, you know, a little money for each meeting that they have to attend. And so th- there were some parameters. Not just anyone could run. You know, you had to be a member of that political party for a certain time. So you couldn't necessarily be a lifelong Democrat and in the last minute switch to Republican and try to get on the commission. So they tried to safeguard against that to just to make sure people were a member of the political party they were trying to apply for. You can't be a recent elected official or someone who's run for office recently or worked for someone recently who is in office. So trying to keep the politics out of the actual commissioners. And then we also had geographic diversity that had to be on the commission. You know, you can't be a lobbyist. So you're trying to make it as equitable as possible. Funnily enough, all those restrictions made it kind of hard to recruit enough people. I remember they had to go out of their way to encourage more people to apply. But, you know, in the end, they did get a nice diverse pool. And I I had to listen to the first meeting, and that was sort of like really a lot of the administrative stuff, Mm -hmm. but also like introducing themselves. So there was this icebreaker question, you know, what's your earliest memory of political or civic engagement? My mother dragging me around the state of Montana when I was in first grade. Um, following um, Jesse Jackson on his campaign. And it was what you'd expect going into the voting booth when you were a kid with your parent, and some you might not have. From campaign headquarters in Colorado Springs, stuffing envelopes with all the little old ladies who were there stuffing envelopes, and I was the only uh, high school kid in the room. You know, I came from Pennsylvania, and we didn't caucus there. So I decided I had to go out and figure out how to caucus, because none of my friends knew how to caucus either. I think my most poignant early memory is the first time I voted for president. And I just remember... It's, it's kind of nice to hear those early memories and that some, oh, oh, the commissioners are coming at this with, I, I don't want to say a sense of pride or, or if you felt yeah. that, but like a sense of the responsibility. Yeah, it's such a great question to open with because, you know, I couldn't help but be reminded of the smell of school gymnasiums and getting to watch my mom operate this crazy machine and Uh, So, yeah, I thought that moment was kind of sweet, actually. Colorado was likely going to get this eighth congressional district, which I think makes this process that much more complicated, but maybe more opportunities as well. Where is this eighth district going to go or what are you guys hearing? What's the speculation out there? I mean, I'm assuming it's going to be where we're seeing most of the population growth along the front range. Yes. I think, you know, depending on which maps you see, I kind of like, I think the ones that are interesting are the ones that put the new 8th congressional district up north, right? You sort of get a Larimer, Weld County, 8th district and try to make it competitive. But if you do that, you know, you could also take out Pueblo because Pueblo doesn't want to be part of the 3rd congressional district and that becomes part of the 4th. And But that's the thing, right? Like it becomes this puzzle. You move one thing or you add yeah. one thing and then you have to shift everything else. But for me, the, the, the thing that I find interesting about moving the putting the 8th Congressional District up north, you know, this Fort Collins, Weld County, Larimer County area is, what happens to Ken Buck? Ken Buck lives in Windsor. He could get written out of his own district. Interesting, which is what can happen during redistricting. Another possibility I saw raised by Magellan Strategies when they were kind of exploring different scenarios was that if you wanted to create a majority-minority district, as they call it, you know, one where Latinos and other people make up a majority of it, you could carve out 
Aurora and parts of the surrounding cities as well. Although we'll see if that is a priority for them or not. And then, Lynn, you had mentioned Pueblo, which is in the third congressional district, which I think is a very interesting district because it's such a large geographic part of the state, you know, including Grand Junction and Mountain Towns, Western Colorado, Alamosa, Pueblo. You know, it's a a huge geographic district. And, And what's interesting right now is Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert represents that district. And we have Democratic state lawmakers are also vying to try to unseat her. One of them is Carrie Donovan. She's in the state Senate and she kind of lives on the very like the border of that district. Um, you know, she's raised a lot of money, but when, when things are redrawn, she may not even live in this district. Exactly. Um, as you mentioned, you know, One of the things about redistricting is lines will move. And Donovan, who did raise, of of all the Democratic uh, nominees so far, she raised the most, about $630,000 to try and challenge Boebert, who also raised a lot of money, about $700,000. But, but you know, it it does come into question, like, will she still be in the district? And while I did have to fact check this because I thought it was kind of strange, a Congress member does not have to live in the district he or she represents. What? (laughs) Yeah, apparently Colorado laws, you don't but, have to be, you don't have to actually live in your district to run for Congress. But I mean, I would say, you know, politically, that's that's going to be, <laughs> that's going to be bad. Yeah, no, I think that would be horrible politically. But she could be raising a lot of money and not end up in the district. One other interesting thing looking at these possible maps is just how square they all are. These shapes just look like something out of Lego. They're, they're so pleasing and compact. What <laughs> like do you the, mean? <laughs> like the, the requirements are that they're contiguous and compact. So they're very normal looking shapes. And, you know, I was, as I've often mentioned oh, in yeah. North Carolina before this, where there was once a great magazine article just looking at all the craziest shapes that we've gotten. And, you know, in North Carolina, like some of these districts for different political races would have arms that like head up the highway and like snake around and like grab a town to try to bring it in to manipulate the numbers. Well, I was going to say, though, when you were talking about that minority majority district, that did kind of look like a horseshoe. It was a little bit odd shaped for for Colorado. Yeah, and those kind of irregular shapes are what happens not just for gerrymandering, like you're pointing out, but also just for when you try to capture different communities of interest together. And I think it's interesting, you know, I'm at the state capitol pretty much every day and seeing, you know, there's a lot of ambition in that building for people to run for different jobs or stay in their current seats. And there's just speculation about where lines are going to be because it it can provide a lot of opportunities. We talked about Pueblo, the Senate president, Leroy Garcia, is in Pueblo. What if Pueblo moved into a different district? I mean, there's always speculation. Is Garcia going to run for Congress someday? You know, he hasn't said anything, but there's there's always that, you know, chess game of like, if this person runs for this seat, what will it happen to this? And something opens up here. And especially with the 8th Congressional District, um, I know Republicans are really excited about the possibility of having a competitive seat. They could win back more congressional seats. Obviously, they just lost a U.S. Senate seat, which isn't part of this process. But I think there's a lot of opportunities that people are going to be very intensely watching with this and whole process. I think that kind of speaks a bit to why state lawmakers were fairly supportive of this idea of handing this power off. Like, it gets rid of the possibility that, yeah, your party will be in power and you get to draw the lines to benefit yourself. But it also means that if you're out of power, you have less to lose because you know, hopefully, that the maps will ultimately end up being more fair, more balanced. And we should also point out, without opening up a whole other can of worms, that there's another commission doing this for state lawmakers' positions as well. No matter what process you create and how fair it is, 
you're not going to please everyone. We know that with anything in life and especially something like this where the stakes are really, really high. We've had court challenges. That's normal. Any way to avoid that this time, especially if the constitutional timelines can't be met, even if it's because of the census data, does that open up room for more lawsuits? Is that pretty inevitable that these maps will be challenged? Yes. (laughs) Yes. I think that's one thing you probably can count on. An excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News, hosted by Binta Berkland, Andrew Kenny, and Caitlin Kim. Hear the entire episode and others on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and at CPR.org. Thank you for joining us today, and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Allie Budner. Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.